Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome to another edition of the Insurgents Podcast. Now, if you've been listening to the previous episodes of the podcast, you know that I'd promised that I would release a very old interview that I did, perhaps one of my first interviews that I've ever done, on the book that came out in 2008 entitled Pagan Christianity. This was many, many years ago. The interview was actually captured on a cassette tape, which has now been translated into an mp3 for this episode. Now before I titled the book Pagan Christianity, the working title was From the Cross to the Cathedral. And in this interview, I speak about the book as I was working on it. And as you know, George Barna is the co-author of that book. If you're interested in the book, you've never heard of it, you'll want to go to paganchristianity.org and you will see a description of that book as well as the constructive sequels. Pagan Christianity, folks, is not a standalone book. If you have only read that, you have not gotten the full picture. People who have read it on its own without the constructive sequels have most of the time been misled and reached wrong conclusions. The constructive sequels are Reimagining Church, From Eternity to Here, and Finding Organic Church. All of those books work together. Now, a few points before you listen to this. Although I am speaking about God's highest and God's best when it comes to how the church should function, the reality of the situation is that God uses all forms of church. That includes institutional churches, organized churches, pastor-led churches, denominational churches, liturgical churches, etc. He will work through any group of people, no matter what the structure is, if their hearts are toward him. In fact, he will often work through an institutional church in more powerful ways than he will a group of Christians that meets in a home that boasts that they're New Testament, but their hearts are not centered on nor given to the lordship and kingship of Christ. So keep that in mind as you listen to this. And the reason why we're publishing it in the Insurgents podcast is because the community of the believers... The corporate expression of the kingship of Christ is an integral part of the gospel of the kingdom. It is, in effect, the product of the gospel of the kingdom eventually. And that's why we have stressed the formation of a kingdom cell, which only requires two people. And even if you belong to a larger church, you can still form a kingdom cell. In the show notes, once again, we have posted the article on how to form a kingdom cell. You will also see an article in the show notes, which you can find on my blog, frankviola.org, entitled, Why You Can't Find an Organic Church. And this was written long after the book, Pagan Christianity, came out. It describes the season in which we are living in now, at the time of this recording. So, that's the prelude to this interview. With that in mind, I hope you enjoy it. I still stand by every word I said in it. And I hope it leads you to see the importance of fellowship with other believers who are kingdom-minded and have hearts after Jesus Christ. Enjoy. 
we've got a, a theological institution not far from here that is in the business of training, quote-unquote, pastors and Christian workers. Co- completely different, I know, from the New Testament style of doing it. Right. Um, but what would be the uh, uh, some of the things that you would say that, that in a modern-day concept of pastor that are so foreign to the New Testament that, that did come out of the Reformation and that developed out of that and that we really have equated with being what the New Testament calls a pastor? Right. Well, that's a great question. First of all, modern Christianity would collapse if you took the pastor away, which is a sad thing. In the first century, basically a pastor simply means shepherd. He's only mentioned once in the New Testament by pastors in Ephesians, and you have a couple occurrences of these guys running around called shepherds. Mm -hmm. And shepherd is simply a metaphor. Uh, It's someone who is very caring, who cares about the flock, the brothers and sisters, is older because they're also called elders. Mm-hmm. And these terms are used synonymously throughout the New Testament. An elder, a shepherd, and he's also called an overseer. And consequently, these are simply the older men in the church. And their role is simply this. If the church is thrown into a crisis, if something is happening to God's people that's destructive, the saints naturally look to these older brothers for encouragement, for advice, for counsel, because they're older. Mm-hmm. But they do not preach to the church every Sunday morning. They do not control the affairs of the church. They do not stand at the helm of the church as a CEO. Their name is not plastered on a marquee outside the building, because they didn't meet in buildings, by the way. Right. Uh, they meant homes. And they were not the chief cook and bottle washer of the Assembly of God. They were just older men in the Assembly, and they did not function any more than the other brothers and sisters. And if one reads their New Testament carefully, they're going to find a de-emphasis on the shepherds. Mm-hmm. They're hardly ever mentioned. And when Paul writes his letters, and I think this is astounding, when he ever writes a letter to a church, he never mentions pastors. He talks to the church. He throws the entire responsibility of the affairs of the body of Christ on all the believers. He talks to the brothers and the sisters. And he doesn't mention elders, and he doesn't mention pastors. And these are churches that were thrown in crisis, virtually all of them. If we read the letters carefully, this is the case. Uh, There's only one fleeting mention of overseers, and he does it in the greeting in the book of Philippians, and then he goes right to the church and he talks to the body of Christ. Now compare that to our modern situation. If there was a church that was having a problem, who do we write to? We write to the pastor of the church, because he, in fact, is seen as the head of the church. You cannot find anywhere in the New Testament where a man is called the head of the church. Uh That term is reserved for only one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. So in any event, uh, really, to answer your question historically, the pastor grew out of the function of the priest, and the priest was the leader of that particular congregation, the Catholic Church, and when Martin Luther launched the Reformation in Germany, he said, we're all priests. Therein grew up the word pastor. And formerly those who were priests became pastors and they became leaders and really it was the same old wineskin all over again. Uh Some man leading and directing the church. You do not find this in the New Testament. You do not find it in the story of the early church. It is nowhere to be found. We read it back into the New Testament. We take our modern conventions and conceptions of a pastor that we all are familiar with and that we've grown up with. You know, the guy that stands in front of the church and Right. Uh, and he is part of the clergy, which is another unbiblical concept, by the way. Uh-huh. A 
I might be giving some of your audience here a heart attack by saying all this. Oh, that's but, okay. But I, I tell you what, I challenge anyone to look at the New Testament carefully and go through some of those Greek words and find out what's there, and you will see that none of these things, buildings and single pastors and preaching sermons to the same people every week and every year, none of these things are in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. These are traditions that we read back into the first century church. Well, I know that you're in the process of working on a, uh, a book entitled From the Cross to the Cathedral, and uh, where you're going to document a lot of the traditions that have uh, uh, been brought into the church. Um, want to share a little bit? Can, do you have uh, some information you can share with the people about some of these things? I know you just briefly... Well, I could, I could touch on some of them. The book, as you said, will be documented, although I'm not sure I'm going to keep the title, but right now, From the Cross to the Cathedral, Tracing the Origins, the Unbiblical Origins of Our Protestant Church Traditions. And it is going to be the first book that's ever been written that will document and footnote all of the traditions that have been handed to us historically that are regarded as being biblical. Mm -hmm. For example, the sermon, the Sunday morning sermon, that grew out of the practice of the Greek philosophers that goes, well, you can trace it back to Aristotle, that gave great orations to a crowd of people. And having three points, a story, you can see the outline of the modern sermon as far back as the 4th century B.C. in ancient Greece. What happened is, during the 3rd century and 4th century, many of the Greek philosophers and the sophists and the Greek orators were becoming Christians. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, they began to uh, infiltrate the church. They were young converts, but they didn't leave out. They didn't drop off their Greek philosophy. They brought it right into the Christian church, they baptized it, and now, instead of giving their Greek orations in front of a Greek audience, they started to do it to God's people, and that's where the sermon came from. Very different from the prophetic utterances and the spontaneous sharing that we see in the, in the first century. Mm -hmm. The building, Christians for the first 300 years did not have buildings. They could have had buildings, they were quite capable of doing it. The Jews had their temples and synagogues, and the Greeks had their shrines, but the first century Christians intentionally met at homes. And really it was, uh, to use common vernacular, Christianity was the first lay-led movement that is led by the laity, so to speak, ordinary believers. They didn't have a priestcraft, and so consequently they met informally, they didn't dress up for church, there was no distinction between clergy and laity, that didn't come till later, and they met in the informality of the home. It was very real, very authentic. They didn't have to put on a show, but it was during the days of Constantine. Uh, again, because the Greeks had their shrines and the Jews had their temples, now the Christians need to get their buildings to make them authentic. Mm -hmm. And all this is traced in history. And the book will document it. It will, it will be footnoted, and it will be quite a contribution. There's so many other things. Uh, Sunday school, seminaries, pews, mm -hmm. the pulpit, the sacred pulpit, the elevated platform that uh, puts the clergy above the, the so-called laity. All of these things, the clergy costume, the clergy dress, and Protestants have it too, by the way, their pastors dress differently than the, than the common people, right. except if you're in the vineyard or something like yeah. that, a contemporary group. There's just been so much that has been handed to us historically, and we never question it. Mm -hmm. We absolutely do not question it. And if we take a good, hard look at the first century church, we're going to see that there is a stark difference between what we do today and what those early Christians did then. And my point and my burden is, let us go back 
to embracing the only head of the church, Jesus Christ, and let us return to first things. Because therein, the Lord will get what he is after. And I think a lot of things that we do today is very human, it's very man-centered, it's very man-made, it's very consumer-oriented and consumer-driven, and the vitality and the life and the centrality of our Lord that marked the first century church is missing today in most groups. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned a moment ago that the Lord would get what he is after, and I, throughout many of the letters of Paul, he talks about God's eternal purpose. And uh, what would you say that it is that God is after? <laughs> well, I would need nine weeks okay. to explain that, brother. <laughs> Summarize. Oh, my goodness. God's eternal purpose. Well, I would say probably that the centerpiece of that is the Lord wants a corporate expression of his son to make him visible in this earth. And frankly, this corporate expression is his bride, and he wants a people that are mutually fitted together, mutually joined together, built together, I'm using Paul's words in Ephesians 2, built together to manifest the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And brother, that cannot happen as we live our individual solo Christian lives, plopping into a building to hear a sermon once a week, to stare at the back of someone's head, to have 15 minutes of fellowship time, and then to go to our own individual homes to live our solo Christian lives. God is looking for a people that are corporately built up together as a building to express His Son. And His eternal purpose is to make Him visible in this earth. He is so in love with His Son that He wants to clone Him corporately, and He wants eyes to see how beautiful He is. And that can only happen when a group of believing saints gather together corporately and manifest him corporately and function together. It does not happen in a building with one man or two people talking to us as we passively sit and listen. That is not the manifestation of the unsearchable riches of Christ. One member, two members, three members cannot manifest Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. It takes a body, a functioning body. And that doesn't mean that, you know, the hand is, is off somewhere teaching Sunday school, hidden away with children, and then another member is taking care of uh, the coffee and tea for after the meeting, and then everyone else is kind of sitting there passively with eyes glazed over trying to pay attention to the sermon. Right. This is not the functioning of the body of Christ. I challenge your audience to read 1 Corinthians 14. Read it carefully, read it closely, and then ask the question, do I see this happening in my church? Right. The issue of leadership will always come up. And when you look at a local assembly in the New Testament type of a format, uh, somebody would say, well, who is to lead the local church? What would be its leadership structure? Uh Uh-huh. Well, yep, leadership is the perennial issue. I think we have inherited Greek ideas of leadership, which is very hierarchical. But in any event, I guess to put a fine point on it, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He alone has the right to lead the assembly. Secondly, the decisions that are made in the church are in the hands of the brothers and the sisters. We are all priests. We are all called ministers. Out of that, there are some who in time, after a church is born, will grow up and become more spiritually mature than the others. Now, they are not to be the leaders in any official sense, where they're the ones that bark out the commands, and they're the ones that tell the brothers and sisters what to do. Not at all. As I said before, they are the ones who are ahead of the others, 
they've grown a little bit more, they're older, they're more seasoned, and so consequently when there is a problem in the church, the saints naturally look to these people. They're always plural. You will never find a single elder mm-hmm. mentioned in the, in the first century church. It's always elders, plural, and they do not run roughshod over everyone else. The brothers and the sisters make the decisions. There is a principle of consensus, uh, some call it unanimity, where everyone has one mind. They will not uh, move forward on the decision until everyone agrees. And those brothers who are more mature are simply there to kind of help guide things. And their leadership is, is almost invisible. It only comes up when there's a big crisis, and the saints naturally and spontaneously look to them for their advice and their counsel. But there is none of this official authority wherein some brothers say, well, you know what? We are God's anointed. God has placed us here over you. You must obey us. Mm-hmm. That was not in the thinking of the first century Christians. It's abuse, and it goes to the very heart of the body of Christ. Right. It turns it into, it takes away from the body, and it turns it into a machine, an organization. So in any event, the leadership of the church is really in the hands of the brothers and the sisters. And you will find this, if you read your New Testament carefully, Paul always talks to the brothers and sisters. And he throws the responsibility for the whole church on them, and he uses this wonderful term, which in the Greek is alilon, it is one another. Mm-hmm. Love one another, care for one another, admonish one another, take care of one another, speak to one another, counsel one another. And you find it over a hundred times throughout the New Testament. So in any event, we do not find any authoritarian leadership in the first century church. We, we read that back into the New Testament, because this is how America, corporate America is, is driven, mm-hmm. by hierarchical leadership. And uh, as I say, my books uh, go into this in a great deal of detail. Well, I know that so much of the church today, and the organized church anyways, is, is highly driven by, by uh, Madison Avenue marketing principles and right. a number of things that have uh, produced a lot of people coming to uh, big gatherings. That's right. And so, and, and of course, logically, a number of men have jumped on the bandwagon and wanting to grow big churches and so forth. And, and uh, what do you think it's going to take to see a real shakedown of this whole system? Uh, of course, and it may not be that the system's ever going to be right. away with. I mean, it's, it's going to always be around, I'm sure, but... But to see this, uh, it really, it's going to take even more than a, than a reformation. That's right. It's going to take a revolution. Uh, right. <laughs> without question. Well, you know, brother, I, I don't really have the answer for that. I, I think it's going to take years <laughs> right. for this to happen, to be quite honest with you, and a real move of God. There are believers right now in your audience listening to this that are dying on the vine in the institutional church. Exactly. They're going to church every Sunday. They're bored stiff. And they have within their hearts this question, is there something more than this? Mm-hmm. Is there something deeper? And if they're really honest, they will say, you know, I, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I do not know Jesus Christ very well. And I'll tell you something. It is in the environment of the church, the ecclesia, and I speak with respect to the first century church and the way the Christians gathered. It is within that context that we get to know Jesus Christ deeply. Mm-hmm. And he has ordained it to be that way in a close-knit fellowship with other brothers and sisters who are pursuing him. But in any event, right now, there are people who are hungry. And I guess a part of it would be contingent upon those hungry ones uh, getting their hands on the materials that are out there that are speaking this word to God's people, and beginning there, and then 
praying and hoping that the Lord will begin to move in a larger way. But I'll tell you something else on the other side of that. We always think in terms of numbers and what is big, and, and of course anything that is good and of God, we want to see believers come into it in mass. But, but the reality is, even in the first century, it was always a small number that were attracted to God's best and God's highest because it was the most costly. Right. In the first century, other than Jerusalem and possibly Antioch, the churches were rather small. The ones that Paul raised up were rather small. We know that the Corinthian church couldn't have been over 60 people, for example. This is all the believers in Corinth in the first century, in between five and seven years, so they were on the planet for a while. And there was only about 60 people in that living room, and they met in Gaius' home. And the first century homes could only fit, the larger ones, those that belonged to the world to do, could only fit about 50 or 60 people. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So consequently, I think our eyes ought to be shifted more on quality, and let's leave, my heart is just leave the numbers to God. It may take many years. It took a long time for the Reformation to happen, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. 1,500 years till the stirrings of the Reformation began to uh, come into sway. So I don't know what it's going to take other than a revelation of the Holy Spirit to God's people, but my heart is set on those hungry souls. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that's what I'm looking to, and we have a message for them. Because I was once a hungry soul, dying on the vine in organized Christianity, wanting to know the Lord, seeing something in the first century church through the scriptures that I did not see going on around me, and it took that for the Lord to, to shake me to my foundations and bring me out and to bring me into something higher. Okay, well, uh, along the lines of uh, somebody was to say, well, if, if you were, if there was an assembly starting up in our community, uh, from from the inception of it, how would it how would it be birthed? What would happen, and and uh, what what would what would take place? What would be some of the the process of that? There are a lot of Christians meeting in homes today that have read books and they left the organized church and they're just trying to do church on their own, and typically they don't last very long, mm-hmm. anywhere between six months and, and two years. Something happens. There's a crisis or a conflict, and the church dissolves. And the reason for that is because we have a principle in the New Testament that is laced throughout the entire story of the first century church, and that is this, that all of the churches that appear in the first century were raised up by outside itinerant workers. Mm-hmm. And they're part of the body of Christ, just like every gift is, but there are men and women who have been called by God specifically to raise up first century style churches. Mm-hmm. They, too, have had experience in first century churches. They grew up in that experience, not as leaders, but as brothers and sisters, simple brothers and sisters. And in time, the Lord has made known their calling to go out and begin to plant churches. So consequently, what I would do is I would go into a town where uh, we were asked to help uh, a group of Christians who want to go in this direction, and I would spend some time with them, anywhere from six months to a year, making visits possibly longer than a year, maybe 18 months. And my message would be this. I would proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ to these people until they were absolutely intoxicated with him and him alone, and I would give them some practical help on how to gather together, how to know him, how to experience him corporately and individually, and then how to come together as the body of Christ, as an expression of Christ, and to make him visible and show them how to manifest him. And then I would leave them on their own, and they would be utterly and totally on their own. 
and then periodically uh, myself or one of my coworkers would go back and visit them and encourage them and if they were have a crisis then they could would contact us but this was the pattern that we see in the first century all the churches that Paul had raised up after he had laid a foundation and that foundation was Jesus Christ it was not eschatology it was not anti-abortion it was not bible study or praise and worship it was Jesus Christ Mm-hmm. And after he would lay that foundation, he would leave those churches on their own. And they would grow up together in Christ. And then he would return periodically and visit. They would be totally on their own, thrown on the Holy Spirit alone, thrown on Christ. And i tell you what, they would get to know the Lord, but they would also learn something of his cross. Mm-hmm. And that's great, because that's how we're transformed. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> we're right. transformed by suffering, not by having everything perfect and clean and marked out for us, but we are transformed by getting to know Him and getting to struggle with one another as we learn to grow in Him. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.